This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. Dorothy said it before, and the Supreme Court confirmed it in a decision on Monday. There is no place like the home, affirming the sanctity of the home from search by police without a warrant. During oral arguments, the justices had questioned whether the so-called community caretaker exception should allow police to enter a home without a warrant. And Chief Justice John Roberts raised some interesting hypotheticals, ranging from an elderly woman who hasn't been heard from to a Van Gogh painting about to be damaged. The neighbors uh, says she hasn't, uh, they haven't seen her all day. She didn't come over for dinner. Uh, she's never late. Uh, is that enough? Uh, and they've got this fence around their backyard. It's, it's locked. Uh, but there's a cat up in the tree. Uh, can, you, can you come and help you know, get the cat down? Uh, is that uh, uh, community caretaking? Okay, it's water dripping from above uh, you know, in, in someone's home, and they happen to own a Van Gogh, and the water's going to ruin the painting. Is that compelling? In a unanimous decision, the justices bolstered the Fourth Amendment's protection of the home against warrantless searches in a rather odd case involving police seizing guns in a potentially suicidal man's home. Joining me is former federal prosecutor George Newhouse of Richards Carrington. George, tell us about the decision. So the decision of Caniglia versus Strong does a couple things. It reaffirms that the home is a man's castle and has the highest protection in the Fourth Amendment. So the right of privacy, the Supreme Court has ruled 9-0, which is a remarkable unanimity, indicates that the police have to be very careful and cautious when entering the home for any, really any purpose, where they don't have consent or there isn't a clear, what the law calls, exigencies. And so this case really was designed to test to see whether another, an earlier case called Katie versus Dombrowski, would be extended in 1973 Supreme Court case where an officer found a gun after he searched an impounded car that had been involved in a traffic accident and towed. And so the court in that case, in Katie, articulated something that they called the community caretaking exception. And that's a reference to, and it's true, the police perform a remarkable number of public safety type tasks that are not law enforcement oriented. They're not searching for criminals. They're trying to protect people. They're helping people who may be injured in their homes. And of course, during the argument, the justices were very concerned that the police have ample authority to undertake these public safety sort of exercises. But in this decision, they made it very clear, and Condiglia has sort of unusual facts, that they can't just come into a house anytime that the police would like to. They need special circumstances, and they need a high degree of articulable reasonableness. So they have to have an objectively reasonable basis for coming into the house, such as, for example, to say the elderly person who may have fallen and injured themselves. So it's an important decision, an interesting one, very short, written by Justice Thomas. Uh, there are a number of concurrences, but only by the conservative bloc. But we didn't hear from any of the liberal justices. So it's an interesting decision. Yeah, four-page opinion, and then very short concurring opinions as well. One written by Chief Justice John Roberts was just a paragraph long. What were they trying to do with these concurrences? Now, remember, a concurrence is not the opinion of the court. Only Justice Thomas wrote that. The concurrences, the justices want to say, as also Justice Kavanaugh wrote a concurring opinion, they're trying to say, this is what the opinion does not say. So we want to be very clear. Justice Roberts was very clear that this decision is not 
interfering or impinging on the ability of the police acting as public safety personnel to enter a home when they have a reasonable basis to believe that someone requires their assistance for sort of non-law enforcement purposes. That, of course, we heard extensively during the argument. And the facts of the case, really, there was no reason for the police to go into Coniglia's house. If you recall, he had an argument with his wife, brought out a revolver, put it in the table in front of them, and then invited her to shoot him and get it over with. An invitation which she declined, left the house, and spent the night in a hotel. And then when she called the next day, he wasn't answering the phone. She was concerned, had the police come with her, and they found him on the front porch. So there was no longer any exigency or emergency. Coniglia said, you can take me to the hospital, but don't take my guns. There was no reason for the police to go into Coniglia's house. Justice Alito talked about the issue of red flag laws allowing gun seizures. Why did he bring that up? That really wasn't an issue in this case, was it? June is an excellent point. No, it was not an issue in this case, and I noticed it as well. It's interesting that Justice Thomas, who wrote the opinion, is probably the most profound advocate for Second Amendment rights, second only to Justice Alito. Justice Alito was signaling in a concurrence when they say something like that, the justice is saying, this is something that we may come back to. And he was clearly signaling to the community some of these red flag laws, which are laws passed by the states that make it possible for the states to come in and seize firearms from persons, particularly persons who are experiencing psychiatric difficulties. And these laws, Justice Alito basically said, well, this issue isn't before us today, but we may get a case at the Supreme Court. And indeed, he seemed to be implying that he would welcome such a case. So it's really an invitation for further litigation on Second Amendment rights. And of course, remember, this case involved a man who had not committed a crime and who the police went into his house and took his gun. So I think it got the attention of the justices that are, shall we say, sensitive to the Second Amendment. So this comes at a time when the police and their powers have come under scrutiny. And this case had civil liberties groups on both sides of the aisle agreeing, the American Civil Liberties Union, the Cato Institute, and the American Conservative Union Foundation joined in a brief. You don't often see that. Very strange bedfellows, indeed. And you're right. It's really because the facts of the case were unusual. The conservatives and those people that were concerned about gun rights, did not like the fact that the police were coming in on their own without a court order and seizing firearms. And at the same time, the ACLU was likewise concerned that anytime someone, the police or the public authorities go into a, a private house without consent, they, they're strong Fourth Amendment proponents. So it's interesting. A Fourth Amendment is one of the more interesting amendments because it is one that sometimes, particularly, for example, Justice Scalia was a very strong advocate of the Fourth Amendment, which is to say restricting the ability of the police or law enforcement to enter homes or do other things that might interfere with the Fourth Amendment right. So Fourth Amendment is a cherished amendment. And of course, the home is the epicenter of that amendment. So it gets the greatest protection. And everyone in this case agreed. Yeah. Did that come as a surprise to you that it was unanimous? Yes, actually, it was. Yes, I think it will surprise a lot of people whenever the court, in these stratified and divisive times, where the court agrees 9-0. And they may be agreeing for slightly different reasons. Again, the, the justices who were concerned about the Second Amendment don't like that. And the other justices, of course, are eager to or keen on seeing that police powers are checked by, by the Due Process Clause. 
Let me put a few scenarios to you, and you tell me if this has any relevance, this decision. So the next time a spouse calls the police and says, my husband is trying to kill himself, help. Can police come in without a warrant? Yes. That probably will be sufficiently objective, reasonable facts that will justify the police, again, acting in their public safety mode to enter the house, particularly if after that call, if they go to the house and they knock and no one answers the door and no one is there to give them consent, my belief is that would be sufficient to allow the police to come in and ensure that there has not been violence in the house. Again, one of their primary roles, public protection, the LAPD's motto is to protect and serve. So this protection role is key and has been key for a number of years, which of course is one reason why, despite the controversy, all reasonable people realize that we need the police. Indeed, we need them better trained, but we need them to be able to do their job and all capacities. So now, another hypothetical. Someone is running away from the police, hot pursuit, runs into his home. Can the police follow him in? Absolutely. So that's the classic exception called hot pursuit. So if the police have probable cause to believe that if someone has robbed a bank or has committed a crime, and they are pursuing that person to apprehend him. They're doing that both to protect the public, but they're doing that in their law enforcement capacity. And that person goes into a house or an apartment or a business, the police may follow, and they do not need a warrant, and they do not need, and of course can't necessarily stop to ask for consent. So that hasn't changed, and that's one of the time-honored exceptions called hot pursuit. So does this case really just leave the law as it was before the First Circuit went out on a limb and said that the caretaker exception applies to the home? That's exactly right. And that's really what the justices were writing to uh, emphasize, that this case does not engender any change in Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. There are at the moment about 10 exceptions to the warrant requirement. And one of them, we really had called it the administrative search, but you could call it community caretaker What the court was really saying was there is no special community caretaker exception. We're not endorsing what the First Circuit did. That phrase is mentioned in Katie versus Dombrowski, but Justice Alito was very careful to point out that the court did not endorse it. So they said, we're not creating any new law here today. And really what the court was saying was, if you will, the exigency exception, which is extremely broad, meaning exigencies being when the police are responding to emergencies, whether they're chasing a fleeing felon or there's a fire in a residence or there's reason to believe that someone in a home or a business requires immediate medical care or assistance, they're in no way restricted from basically entering that that individual's home or residence to provide the aid. So no, no law has been changed. The Fourth Amendment jurisprudence per this decision is the same as it was before. Thanks, George. That's George Newhouse of Richards Carrington. The Senate Judiciary Committee advanced five of President Joe Biden's first judicial nominees today, bringing them one step closer to confirmation. The list included Katanji Brown-Jackson, who's considered a potential Supreme Court nominee for the powerful D.C. Appeals Court. Joining me is Carl Tobias, a professor at the University of Richmond Law School. Tell us what happened at the Senate Judiciary Committee. Well, it was better than I had expected and many observers thought because some Republicans voted for every nominee. The district nominees easily secured support. One had a 19-3 to vote, but the two appellate nominees 
for the D.C. Circuit and the Seventh Circuit were closer. Katanji Brown-Jackson for D.C. Circuit had a 13-9 vote, and Candace jackson Akawumi had a 12-10 vote for the Seventh Circuit. But still, at least there was some bipartisanship in all of the votes, so that's a promising sign. And all of the nominees were rated highly qualified by the ABA, the highest rating. Why more division on the circuit court nominees? Is it because they're circuit court nominees, or is it because of who they are? It's both, but especially for the D.C. Circuit, which is the second most important court in the country, and it's not a very well-kept secret that if President Biden has a Supreme Court vacancy, he has promised that he would appoint a black woman And it certainly looks like Ketanji Jackson would be that person. So that's especially important. And the Seventh Circuit, of course, is very important, too, with no people of color on the court. It covers large states, Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin, and the Midwest, and receives many difficult, complicated cases. And, of course, you know, that's basically your Supreme Court for the region, the Seventh Circuit, for example, in which the court sits because the Supreme Court grants so few petitions. And so it's critically important. And, you know, there's so many, many, many more district judges, and they tend to make less policy because they can't even bind judges in their own courthouse with their rulings. Republican Senators Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, and Ben Sass voted no on each nominee? I think that's correct. And some of them weren't even there. They just voted proxies. I think Sass was not there. So we may expect that, though, because certainly Cruz and Hawley have made no bones about their own ambitions to be president in 2024, and they are very vocal, outspoken, and vigorous critics of President Biden and his nominees. And so it's to be expected. And so it's not surprising that they voted no. Senator Dick Durbin, who is the chair of the committee, told Bloomberg he's fully prepared for opposition from the panel's Republicans, particularly those positioning themselves for a possible White House bid. As I look across the table, with the exception of two or three Republicans, I'm facing their most aggressive members. Has this become a high profile, a very high profile position? Is there a reason why the most aggressive and possible presidential candidates from the GOP are on this committee? Well, they probably choose to be on that committee, and the issues that the committee takes up are critically important. And remember, we saw three justices appointed by the last administration, each of whom was controversial. And the American people seem to be focused, especially after the court granted cert in the abortion case out of Mississippi, on the Supreme Court. And so it's not surprising that presidential candidates gravitate to that committee, and they certainly have. You've got Tom Cotton, you've got Ted Cruz, you have Josh Hawley, and a number of others who are quite conservative ideologically. And the committee takes up a number of other issues. For example, a number of the questions about policing and criminal justice reform go through that committee on the way to the floor. So it's an important committee in terms of its subject matter, 
and then uh, all that it does. All the Justice Department uh, political appointees have to be confirmed, and they come before the committee. All the 94 U.S. attorneys, all of those important positions um, have to have the blessing of the committee. And so there's a lot of hot-button issues that are addressed in that committee. Do progressives seem to be more concerned about diversity of experience than racial diversity, or is it just that they know that Biden is going to choose candidates who are racially diverse? Well, I think Biden has said, and Democrats, I think, are committed to having ethnic diversity on the courts because there was so little uh, done in the Trump administration. As Durbin repeated again today, uh, President Trump couldn't manage to nominate a single black person for the uh, 54 appellate judges he nominated and confirmed. Uh, and Biden uh, could manage to find three uh, black women in his first batch, uh, two of whom uh, were sent to the floor today by the committee. And so I I think that you can have, and I think Biden uh, reflects in his nominees uh, and soon his appointees, um, both ethnic, gender, and experiential diversity, um, and um, both uh, circuit nominees in this batch, uh, sent out of committee today, reflect that. So in the new batch, if confirmed, the list includes Gustavo Gelpi, who would be the second Hispanic judge to serve on the First Circuit Court of Appeals. He's an interesting choice. He's the chief judge of the District of Puerto Rico, and he was an appointee of George W. Bush. Do you often find uh, presidents nominating judges who have been appointed by presidents of the other party? Well, not usually elevated to the appeals courts, but I assume that um, the White House is comfortable with the um, wealth of experience, 15 years or more, that uh, Judge Gelpie has, and so um, wants to continue the tradition. Juan Torriello served with great distinction on the First Circuit in he was from Puerto Rico. Uh, and there was, a, for a brief moment, uh, a district judge from Puerto Rico whom Trump had appointed was nominated, but it was too late in Trump's term to confirm that person. Um, and um, so I think that the White House is comfortable with this person, and uh, he does have, bring a wealth of experience. Uh, and he grew up, I think, went to uh, college and law school in the U.S., but is from Puerto Rico, and so uh, nominated him. So the list, the latest list of nominees bring Biden's total list of proposed nominees to lifetime federal judicial appointments to 19, plus one nominee to the D.C. Superior Court. But there are more than 100 judicial vacancies. Is Biden moving too slowly? Well, I think he's moving methodically and systematically and uh, just about as quickly as possible with his third package. And they're moving through the committee, as we saw today, hopefully would, might be confirmed even before the recess next week, this group of five, but at least several of them would be. And then they've had another hearing and another hearing is scheduled next week. So I think both the White House and the Senate are moving the nominees, but 
you do work against the calendar, as you're suggesting, uh, and they may try to step that up uh, over the summer and into the fall. Um, and I, th- I think they will. They're partly waiting on senators to make their recommendations to the White House, but those have been expedited. And so I think we're likely to see larger packages uh, more uh, quickly sent over to the Senate and hopefully quickly moved through the Senate. But um, the tradition is to have hearings every two weeks, and with the uh, various holidays and um, work weeks that the Senate takes outside of Washington, it's difficult. The calendar is is tough. And so I think uh, the White House and Durbin are doing all they can. Um, but you're correct. Um, there are many vacancies. Right now, I think the current vacancies, there are 70 on the district bench and seven, I believe, on the appeals court bench. Um, but some will be filled next week. So there have been two sets of hearings, I believe, of nominees. In the second one, it seemed as if the nominees got few questions from the senators. There was little pushback. And in the first one, as we just, you know discussed before, there was not very much pushback from the senators, and they avoided a lot of the divisive questions that people had expected of the Republican senators. What's happening? Why aren't they taking more interest in these lower court nominees? Well, I, that's a good point, especially you saw with the district nominee votes today, uh, who are mostly na- you know, nominated, recommended by senators because they can move the cases at the district level. And so, and they, all five today were uh, rated highly qualified by the ABA. So it's hard to oppose them. Uh, But I agree with what you said about the two circuit nominees. There were not very many sharp questions, but part of that may reflect um, the Katanji Jackson's great skill in answering the questions um, and her great experience on the D.C. district. And so, um, and the fact she may well be a Supreme Court nominee in the future. Um, and the same with the Seventh Circuit nominee. She was very skilled in answering the questions. And so um, it doesn't help to, um, to ask sharp questions of nominees who have very responsive answers if you're trying to score points. And so you see some of that kind of dynamic. But by and large, I think the district nominees are not going to be controversial, and the Republicans are going to vote for them, as they did today. Uh, So it's really the appellate nominees, and there are fewer of those appellate vacancies right now. So, And is it expected that the nominees that were advanced will receive confirmation from the full Senate? Yes, yes, because um, it's 50-50. And so uh, I assume the people who voted yes on the GOP side, uh, Graham uh, voted for both of the circuit nominees, will vote for them on the floor. And that's all you need, uh, unless there is a Democratic defection. And I don't see any reason why that would be the case for either of these circuit nominees. So they'll certainly go through, and the district nominees, of course, had strong Republican support in committee. So they will have that on the floor as well. Thanks, Carl. That's Professor Carl Tobias of the University of Richmond Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosseau. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune to the Bloomberg Law Show weeknights at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.